Thank you for joining the Chair Chronicles podcast. I'm Carla D. Tillery, your life coach and your favorite auntie. This episode is part of a four-part series on, Have You Had the Talk? The talk is a common expression in the Black community, but usually it's focused around having those conversations with your children about racism. But we need to have more of the talk. So this series deals with having the talk with our families about unexpected and expected deaths of a loved one, having the talk with our children about racism, having the talk with our family and friends about the psychological impacts of living while black, and also having the talk about the economic pitfalls that face the black community. Welcome to the Chair Chronicles podcast. I'm excited because I have some special guests. Uh, Ella and I are excited to host another uh, part of the talk series. And today's podcast is about, have you had the talk about the racial pandemic? Who are you talking to and what are you talking about? Because it is such an important and necessary conversation. As a result, there's so many things we've seen now on the news, on media, on social media accounts. Everybody is talking now uh, about what is happening with our, the race wars, for lack of better words. There's so much tension that's going on in America, and we need to have that important conversation. So thank you for joining us. We have Mr. Kevin Hunt here, who I'm so excited to be here with us. And we also have Mr. Denville Lawrence. And they're going to just share some of their experiences and join me in LA as we talk about this important conversation. So hello, everybody. Hello, hello, thanks for having me. Thank you. Welcome to our virtual studio. Yes. (laughs) All right, so let's kick it off. And I really would love to hear um, about what your racial encounters have been. And when did you realize you were black? Did your mom tell you? Did you, you know, did someone was like, oh, you are black. Like, when did you realize that you were really in the minority? Uh, mm-hmm. And did you, did someone point it out to you? So I'll start with you, Mr. Kevin. When did you find out you were black? Wow. Um, probably when I was about seven or eight, I went to a camp, ironically called Camp Whiteman. And uh, it was in Norwich, Connecticut. And my mother sent me there uh, just to kind of get me out of, out of the neighborhood for, for a week. It was a two-week camp. And it was a Christian-based camp. And I get to this camp, and I am the only Black person there. And so as most kids do, we start teasing each other. This kid's short. This one's too skinny. This one's fat. And that went on for a while. And then one kid came out and said, you're the only black kid here. And I was like, well, dang. And I didn't have a comeback for that. But interestingly enough, my experiences at a very early age was one of superiority over white folks. I didn't have the inferior complex that is so entrenched and and so brainwashed that we had. I actually felt sorry for white folks. We used to play ball with them and they always seemed weaker, not as good, not, they couldn't dance. Um, You can see certain favoritism to them. So I actually felt sorry for them and losing any type of contest, whether it was an academic contest or a scholastic contest, it was almost equal to being, if you will, beat by a girl back then. So I've always felt this certain sense of superiority over white folks and and, all, and feeling actually sorry for them. <laughs> so, okay. so it's a little different. I could, yes. <laughs> but that's, my, that's, my, that's my first encounter. That's your first Certainly, encounter. Yeah. That was Got my you. first encounter, yeah. All right, Dimple, when did yeah, you I realize can... you were Black? What's your first like, experience about recognizing that you might be different or in the minority or maybe or maybe the superiority? <laughs> <laughs> I can actually uh, echo some of the same sentiments as Kevin because of the fact that, you know, when it came to sports, 
you know, growing up, my neighborhood was pretty split. My, my school was pretty split. I'd like to say when I looked across the locker room in high school, there was five white kids, five black kids and five Hispanic kids. And uh, that's pretty much the, the way that um, the populace kind of equated to my neighborhood. Um, but when I first encountered or first realized that I was black, um, wasn't until I was actually like 19 and really like aware of like what was going on around me. I had gotten my first car. Um, I worked really hard for it. I was just really proud to drive around my 1997 Honda Civic. And um, I was 19 years old and I would go to work in the morning from seven to three. And after that, I would take off and go play basketball for the rest of the afternoon and evening. Uh, so my, I picked up my friend. We were driving to Middletown to go try to find a place to hoop. And uh, to, to no avail, we couldn't find a place. So we're headed back to Meriden. On our way back, we got pulled over. Um, I didn't realize at the time um, that colors mattered. Uh, you know, so I'm not talking about the color of my skin. I'm actually talking about colors, color affiliations. Mm. Um, I had a, you know, waves were big. So I had my, my, my do-rag on. I had my hair brushed to make sure that, you know, if I was sweating, my do-rag was going to get soaked up with the headband. And um, I, I was pulled over and the cop, the first thing he asked was to get out of the car. Mm. Um, my, friend and my, my, my friend and I were both 19 years old. We got out of the car. Um, he said, what are you guys doing in Middletown? Um, are you guys a part of a gang? Are you guys bloods? And, uh, you know, I, that's when I realized, like, yeah, I had a red cutoff shirt. It was like a summer league basketball shirt. Um, and I had red sneakers on, red and white um, Jordans. And I had a black and red two-tone do-rag on. And that's when I realized, like, wow, like, am I being pulled over because I'm black and because I have red on? And that was like sort of disheartening to me because of the fact that that like I, that wasn't my experience growing up. I, my experience of police officers growing up were uh, police officers that sort of looked like me, whether black or Hispanic. Um, and even the white police officers would stop by. I remember when I was like seven, seven or eight years old and they they kind of stopped by with uh, Lion King toys when Lion King was big um, around Christmas. So. In retrospect, you know, this experience was just like shocking to me. I, I now realize like, wow, I didn't, I didn't blow by a stop sign. I didn't run a red light. I'm being pulled over because I'm driving through a neighborhood in Middletown and I'm black and I have red on. So uh, it took about 10, 15 minutes for the cop to search our car. I had my hands on the hood. Um, across the street was a uh, former girlfriend's uh, aunt. Um, she actually reached out to me on Facebook a little while, uh, probably like an hour or two after that. She actually said to me that she was so proud uh, of the way that I stay composed while they searched my car and they found nothing. Um, it was like maybe another 15 minutes after that and I was let go. Um, but I, that was the first time that I actually felt like rattled, like mm. maybe I'm doing something wrong, even though I know I didn't do anything wrong. Gotcha. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably, unfortunately, a common experience being pulled over, uh, perhaps because you fit some type of profile. Um, yeah. So so yeah. So Latricia, so I'm and it's going to be interesting to see if there's any differences between the male and the female experience. Latricia, mm -hmm. when did you realize you were black? Is it something similar or something totally different? Well, actually, you know, it's it's similar. Um, I grew up in a multicultural neighborhood, um, you know, Italians, Indian, Spanish, you know, white. Um, so my experiences growing up as a as a child, you know, we all played together. It, it, we really didn't do the, the you know, oh, your skin is dark and my skin is like we didn't do any of those kind of games or, or anything like that. Um, I didn't have my first experience of of someone really being surprised and shocked that I was black um, was when I graduated from college and my first job, I'm dating myself now, but it was the Chapel Square Mall when there were businesses um, in the tower. I worked for a law firm and uh, one of our clients was from South Africa. And so I spoke to him a lot on the phone. Um, he came into the office. I walked in and introduced myself and his words were, Oh, wow. I didn't know you were black. Wow. Yeah. And so at that time, you know, being right out of college and, you know, very sure of myself, um, my retort back was I leaned back and said, oh, I didn't know you were white, <laughs> you yeah. know, and I, I didn't get it. I didn't I didn't understand. And I'm one of the questions thinking. I said, well, why? 
why did you ask? I said, why are you shocked? And he was honest. He said, first of all, I didn't, I, you know, your name doesn't sound ethnic and you don't sound black. Yeah. And we ended up in a discussion. I said, well, what is black supposed to sound like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I walked back to my desk and I wasn't, I was surprised that I wasn't angry about it. I was just like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? You know, I didn't, I don't sound black. You know, you're shocked that I'm black. Like, what is that? You know, so I think it was more so me thinking, okay, this guy truly doesn't get it. I mean, I could have felt the same way. You're from South Africa. When we think of Africa, who do we think about? Mm. People of color, you know? So, um, yeah, that was, that was like the only experience that I had that really kind of took me back. And I was like, Right. I don't know how I should feel about that, you know. So it's interesting I, because you and so Latricia, you and um, uh, Dimple had experiences closer to your late teens, and it sounds yeah. like Kevin, yours was a lot younger, and so was mine. Mine was much. I remember I was eight years old, and I lived at that time in an all black neighborhood. Uh, I went to a school that was diverse. But at that time, there were only a few school buses. And so I didn't, what I recognized was there was a first bell and a second bell. And I was always on the second bell when they discharged because they took the white kids home first. And then they would come back to the school and pick up the black kids and take us to our homes. And so that's Uh when I started to recognize that I didn't look like them, nor did I live where they lived. And I was always last. The black kids were always last. We were the last ones Mm -hmm. to go eat. We were the last ones to get to the school. And we were the last ones to leave the school because Mm -hmm. the white neighborhoods had the resources first and then they will come get us. So I was eight years old when I started to recognize that there certainly was a distinction between the white kids and me. Well, I think looking back for me, and it was an early age, is that I was always, uh, it seems as I look back, prepared for it. Um, um, L.A. talks about dating herself. Um, I'm getting ready to really date myself. (laughs) But I was a 15-minute member of the Black Panther Party in New Haven. and. Yeah, I actually, I mean, the Black Panther headquarters was actually right down the street in Dixville Avenue from my house. And we used to go down there as kids and uh, they had like a basketball court back there. So we used to play ball. So we, you couldn't help but hear their rhetoric and you couldn't help but hear the down with the pigs. And I'm talking about being like 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, So there was a point in time that I know that I was prepared for it. And I was only a member for 15 minutes because when I came home with the Black Panther garb on, I mean, I had the, the, the beret and I had the cutoff denim jacket and I had the Afro. And I remember walking up the driveway and I saw my mother in the kitchen. And I think I said something like, like right on and power to the people. And uh, she literally beat that crap off me because back then, the Black Panther Party were targets by the police. Oh yeah. So the targeting by the police is as as we all know here is not anything new. The newness of it is that the technology has made it more uh, out there. So <laughs> but yeah my experience and I was always prepared for it. It was like, you know, here's the set of rules. And the fact that they're unfair means absolutely nothing. You have to, it's kind of like if it's raining, you put on a raincoat. If it's cold, you put on a winter coat. If there's white folks on there, you got to cloak yourself in anti-racism garb. So, you know, I was prepared for it. Um, and it was so abstract back then. It wasn't as in your face now. It was something like more of not listening to the music that you liked on the radio. You didn't have, You didn't see us on television. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But the first instance was when I was at this program at Yale as a kid and I went to the bookstore, which is now Barnes and Noble. And I went to the Yale bookstore to get my books and told to leave the store. And I said, gee, are you closing? And the guy, it was like me and three of my friends. And he was like, no, we're not closing, but you guys are probably going to steal 
and I don't have time to follow you around, so you're going to have to leave. So I went home and told my mother that I, you know, she said, did you get your books? I said, no. And she goes, why? I said, because we left the store. My mother was like, um, she was kind of like Malcolm X and Bobby Seal rolled into one. She didn't. (laughs) And so she went down to the store and made a scene. Mm. And I loved it because I like, and Carla knows me, I don't ever shy away from confrontation. And I probably get it from my mother, but I absolutely loved it. Absolutely. And, but she conducted herself in such a ladylike way. I mean, there was no profanity. There was no loud talking, but she was not to be denied. I got my books, got them for free. And uh, yay for your mom. Yeah. That's, that's how you handle stuff. You know, I mean, yeah, it's unfair, but you don't cower away from it. There are things right. you have to do to overcome it. And right. So, so you were talking earlier, Kevin, about a little bit about you know the only difference now and what we're experiencing is that some of the incidences are more accessible, whether it's through people's using their phones to record mm-hmm. and posting on social media. Is there anything else from anybody in terms of explaining why does does it feel, it feels a little different to me. Um, it, it certainly feels like there's this huge awakening to other people that this exists. And my response has been, you know, it always exists. I've got right. hundreds of stories to tell about different incidences where people made me realize that I was black by the way they treated me because they didn't mm-hmm. treat me like I knew I should have been treated and I know that they were not treating me like other white counterparts. And so I've always known this exists because I've always been black, but it does feel like something is different now. What do you guys think? Is it different? Is it the same? I think that um, in my experience, I feel like in the last three to four years, it's been more prevalent to me. And I'm not sure if it's more of a uh, psychological, uh, social climate wokeness, or if it's something that is just more overt um, in my my experience of like becoming more of an adult, right? So I would say that my experience in college was pretty much the same as my experience in high school, even though I saw more white people around me than people of color, people that look like me. Um, But I think that for me, school was a focused arena where I like went to school, I was an RA, so I did that. And I was again in more of a, like what Kevin referred to in more of a superior role. Um, And in fact, like the people that reported to me or the people that, um, you know, I was responsible for actually didn't look like me. so it wasn't until I actually started working and in my, my, my latter uh, or most recent employer that I really saw a difference um, in comparison to my former employer. So my experience right out of college. So I would say that um, ways that I've, made, I've been made to feel different, um, being given one message by leadership to bring your true self to work. Um, and so my true self is to be a little more relaxed and, and I can speak very professional. So I can, I can do a lot of code switching. Um, but then I also can shut it off and feel, feel a little right. more relaxed and say, yeah, yeah, no doubt. I'll, de- I'll definitely get that done for you or whatever the case may be. So in that experience of working with a recruiter that has actually been at, my, uh, at Yale University uh, for about 10 years or so, she felt the need to continue to uh, check me about things that I would say, for example, like, yeah, no doubt. And she'd say, yeah, we don't, we don't talk like that in this office. We're, we're professional. And so I then start to realize that there is a white professionalism that's defined within a predominantly white culture. And that's when things really start to kind of spiral downhill for me, because I definitely start to feel way different, again, from my former experiences in high school, and experiences in college where I was, I was either in the in crowd or a, 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 I would say more superior than in crowd in terms of like leadership roles or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what I mean by it started to go downhill was I, I was then starting to feel more and more outcasted in my department, um, whether it was doing something well and not receiving recognition for it. Um, and then seeing your white counterparts receive recognition for way less I'm, I'm talking about things that are not even having to do with work, like cleaning the kitchen 
or cleaning the refrigerator uh, in the office um, versus actually like knocking out my metrics and doing well and getting, you know, great reviews from hiring managers and clients, et cetera. Um, so this is, these are things that further and further, whether they were subliminal or whether, um, I apologize, whether they were passive or whether they were more overt, I started to feel more and more outcast. And it, it was disheartening to me. It definitely kind of took the wind out of my sails. Someone who came from a former employer, very energized um, and willing to go you know, above and beyond. Um, and I think that it was just one instance after another where I actually saw that my colleagues, my, my peers that were at the same level as me, brand new to the organization, um, they were being talked to differently. They were given more chances. It seems like uh, it seemed like people were a little more short with me um, versus uh, my, my counterpart. So uh, I would say that uh, it, it, it became more overt as I got older. Um, and I'm not quite sure whether it was because I was more aware of it or whether it was just mm-hmm. just more present. Mm. Mm-hmm. Is it different or the same, Kevin? Um, there's something different about this movement that I haven't seen. Again, you know, going back to the Black is Beautiful movement. I mean, I I love that time, that time frame, that time period for us as Black folks. Um, we were unified. We were embracing our Blackness. We weren't shying away from it. Um, and it was a true movement like we you know we were on the same page and i haven't seen until recently until you know the recent events i haven't seen a more consistent organized movement like we do like we're having now i think we just got in a comfort zone whether it was Mm. the 80s 90s and the early millennial is it's 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 now it's it's a rallying cry and you know it, it could be because of the orange guy did I say that right? The orange guy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and and every adverse situation, there is a strength to it, and so indirectly, I think he has unified us. He he has, yeah. you know, made us more aware of the situation. So I think it's different. The, the movement now is different. The situation for me, as an older person, is essentially the same. But the movement now does feel mm. a little bit more different and a little bit more sustained. I mean, there will mm. be little pockets every now and then. You know, I can think of like OJ. Right. You know, we we kind of got together then, or Rodney King. But I see a more organ organized and sustained movement now than I think at any other time in probably decades. Right. I, I mean, I think right now we are in the middle of history. Uh, and, and, and of course, I think we always are in the moment of history, but particularly as it relates to, as you call like a movement, you know, I, we, we hear often about the civil rights movement. And now mm-hmm. we're hearing about the Black Lives Matter movement. And yeah. to me, those have been a very uh, clear sort of identity of something happening where there's this collective purpose, this collective intent of, of doing something to create uh, a different experience for Black people. And I think, of course, for the civil rights, it was about our rights to be able to do just like, you know, the, the white America could do in terms of where they ate, how they would ride the bus and owning things and all of that and having a right to, you know, to vote. And all of those things were associated with just what their right was legally. And I think now the Black Lives Matter movement is very different from the civil rights movement because we can do some of those things, right? We can, mm-hmm. we can vote, we can go to a restaurant, we can ride the bus right. and sit wherever we want to. Right. We can buy houses, we can do all those things. But now the Black Lives Matter movement to me is, is, really, is really digging to another layer of what our rights are. Because now yeah. we're being right. harmed, we're being killed, doing those things that we now have a right to do. You know, so whether we're going to the store, uh, reading a book or sitting in a dormitory in a college, you know, now we're getting called on uh, and saying we're threatening and we're, you know, uh, we're in places that we shouldn't be. And we're now doing things that we actually fought to do. But now it's this whole nother layer that we can't do those things just because we're black. Mm 
Right. So it does feel different. It does. It feels different to me because um, I, I, I think along with the media, um, I, I think I agree. I think the, the political climate really has shed, uh, a, has really shed a spotlight on it. And, and for good or for bad, I do think it's giving us an opportunity to mobilize again, because I do think things have gotten quiet. I do. Right. But I, I also feel that, that this actually started bubbling just below the surface when Barack took, you know, President Barack took office. We we saw on a national level uh, people that were um, standing on the Senate floor telling him, you know, that he's a liar and to shut up and, and, and you know, just being totally disrespectful and, you know, really just disliking him because he was a black man. And it was like, you have no right to be in this position. So I always felt that, you know, this is not new to us. Those of us who have, have been around long enough, we know, you know, when I hear people say, oh, I don't see color. Okay, that's 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 a scapegoat. Uh, it's uh, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to talk about race. Let's just be clear for some people, not for me. Um, but we saw that happening with just the, the total lack of respect. You know, um, calling his wife names. You know, so we saw people, like you said, in in places of power, showing who they really are. So, are we surprised that number forty five? who really it's about himself and, and getting glory for himself. Are we surprised that he kind of eggs people along and, and actually makes them feel comfortable, um, you know, just being blatantly racist and, and nasty and, and disgusting. And it, and it, I mean, all facets, not just about, you know, uh, race, but just people with disabilities, you know, just, it runs the gamut. So we have people that are just out here feeling like I can do okay. So. Well, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think uh, um, Barack being elected president gave white folks a, uh, oh, hell no movement, you know, uh, thought like, how did we let this happen? And um, I, I just feel, I mean, white folks are going to be white folks. And, and maybe that's a controversial statement. I don't expect anything. Like if I see, if I see a lion in my backyard, I expect them to attack me. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just what I expect. And I just think that to the movement sometimes is misguided. You, you can't go to the enemy for your remedy. And I just think that we have the resources ourselves to just, I think we have to start from within out more so than out in. And, I, and that's always the problem I've had is that I don't think white folks are our biggest enemy right now. I think we're our biggest enemy right now and i'm not looking to the white to, to white folks to do anything different than what they've been doing but i think if we arm and equip ourselves with with educate education knowledge resources it, it won't matter what they're doing yeah and i think i think that that point can be controversial at times or at least a good debate because i think we need both i i i i think that we absolutely, as a, as a group of people, need to work on ourselves to come in agreement and to take action together. Because I think if we don't, if we're not unified, then we're, we're you know, it, it's like hit or miss, I think, in certain targets that we have overall as a Black community. But I do think that those who, you know, whether you non-Black, the non-Black community, whatever you are, whether you're white, whether you're Asian, where whoever, I do believe that you should join forces with us be and recognize that there has been some challenges because of the system. And if you believe that, I welcome you. Uh, so I'm, I'm open to, to non-Blacks being supportive of us. Um, and I, but I do think there is certainly a really necessity for us as a Black community to make sure we have you know, we're dotting our I's and crossing those T's and unifying ourselves, which I think is also a little bit of a challenge for us. I mean, you know, we're, if, if we're totally honest, you know, we have a lot of different perspectives at times. And I think we have sometimes the same goal, but the approach and the method, it varies. I mean, it was definitely the same in the civil rights movement because there was a difference in approach from Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. 
And I'm more right. of the Martin Luther King era, you know, and, and some of the people now, some of the younger people, you know, I heard someone say, you know, those are Malcolm X grandkids. You know, they got a different way of addressing this. Right. right. <laughs> and right. and I'm, I'm like, I'm Martin Luther King grandkids. So I'm more a little <laughs> bit more, you know, I have a different language. I have right. a different approach to it. And, and so right. I think it's a little bit of that still going on as well. <laughs> Right, right. And yeah, I, think I, it's a rec- I think it's a recognizing um, that this is a this is more than just what we see on the surface. This is uh, systems that have been in place for hundreds of years that are so embedded in our fiber in America. I mean, we can look at books and, and there's a book called Cast. And it just talks about, you know, how people were placed in um a level of society, whether they're the upper echelon or whether they were the bottom feeders, you know, so it's where we have that call to action. What are those things that we can truly get at where we have political leaders, we have we have grassroots efforts to knock these systems down. Now, will we eradicate it? I don't know. They're so deeply embedded, but I believe that we have more people, like you said, of other races that, you know, they, they love getting along. They have a problem with people not being able to get along. So I, I, I'm also embracing that, that, you know, if there are people that want to get involved and they ask, you know, what can I do? You know, let's embrace them. You know, it doesn't mean that we have to exclude them because it's not their problem. Yeah. You know, yeah. we do better together. Yeah. So I, I'm curious uh, what the psychological impact, how has this all affected you? Because I, I think I see it differently in different people that I talk to and come across of how, you know, the tension right now is affecting us, whether it's something more intentional at work happening or just you are having more uh, occurrences, whether you're interacting more with the police or just seeing things more on social media. But how has this affected you, Denville? How do you feel uh, with all of this going on, how's it, how's it affected you? Are you losing sleep? Are you, you know, are you nervous? Or is there some anxiety? I'm curious to how it's affected you. Yeah, um, I would say that it's been a progressive uphill, uh, positive, uh, positively moving uphill battle for me. I think um, during COVID, I definitely felt sad. I, my, my, I had some very vivid dreams of you know, having to carry a lot more often. Um, I'm a gun owner. Um, I've always collected guns. Um, I've never really felt the need to go jogging and carry a gun in my backpack, but that's definitely something that I was doing after I witnessed Ahmaud Aubrey uh, be gunned down while he was like running and jogging. Um, and in in, par- in kind of in comparison, uh, I'm in Rocky Hill, Connecticut, so the back route that I take to go jogging or walking is actually by along like a very uh, uh, a woodland. Uh, nearing a golf course. So it's, it very much mirrors the same scene that Ahmaud uh, Ahmaud Arbery was like shot and gunned down in. Mm. So that's definitely something that was like on my mind heavy. Um, A few weeks after that, I actually was running up, uh, you know, doing sprints up a hill on a street with my girlfriend. And this uh, white couple was coming uh, towards us and said, uh, you know, I was very winded. I put my hands on top of my head to kind of get, uh, you know, more oxygen in my lungs. And this white couple had said to me, oh, yeah, you don't have to put your hands up or we're not going to arrest you or anything. And so that was was like two weeks after. Yeah, Yeah. that was two weeks after the Ahmaud Aubrey incident. So this was just more and more on my mind. Um, I was I felt sad. I felt depressed watching CNN, watching riots, um, you know, watching a special on all the folks, all the folks that look like us that have been shot, gunned down, killed by police, et cetera. I, I thought my son was actually just watching his tablet as I had CNN on, but he popped his head up and he said, um, "Daddy, um, am I going to get am, am I going to get killed too?" Uh-huh. And you know that's something that that hit hard for me because you know I I didn't think in me trying to just kind of get caught up on what was going on going to like impact him, um, but like that that killed me. It makes me emotional to this day because of the fact that, you know, he's so innocent. I think about my experience growing up and not really witnessing, uh, you know, or not being aware of racism um, and being blessed enough to be in that position. Um, And I I don't know what he's going to go through. I don't know the conversations I'm going to have with him besides like conversations that people have with me about dealing with cops. but I think along the way, I would say sometime in June or July, 
I just felt so empowered. I started to begin to feel more empowered because I was inspired to just take action. How can I make people around me um, more aware, um, especially working at Yale University? I'm a part of uh, Yale African American Infinity Group um, and really just understanding that I work for a university um, whose sole tenants were set upon to make uh, supremacy uh, more elite um, and further carry on through, you know, the Ivy League, uh, the Ivy League college experience, um, further, further bolstering um, white supremacy um, in, in the form of like just, just uh, you know, the caste system that uh, Latricia referred to, um, further kind of giving those folks more access um, and obviously uh, less access to, to the folks that are more of the bottom feeders, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, so the work that I do at the university now um, really just includes like panel discussions. Um, I actually partnered um, with my son's mother uh, because she's a therapist. I partnered with the university and brought her in to discuss mental health, um, having uh, age-specific conversations with our children um, for, for uh, the, you know, the mental health aspect, uh, repurposing our homes. So many of us are dealing with covid and the social impacts of uh, racism that is going on currently in our social climate. Um, so as we've repurposed our homes and we are having the TV on while we are in our office, et cetera, just being exposed to all these things all at once, um, just really trying to make our homes our homes again and not our, our office space and learning how to um, cut off and have an appropriate work-life balance. Um, so those are some of the things that I'm doing now um, as I feel more and more empowered. Um, I actually just recently twisted my hair um, and I, I'm, I'm really owning uh, being Black uh, in my environment. I'm no longer, um, you know, cutting my hair short and rocking a high fade or rocking a Caesar to satisfy folks that, look, uh, that don't look like me around me. Um, and I, I'm really feeling proud, feeling more and more proud to be who I am, um, be intellectual. Um, we're in a, in a university where academia reigns supreme, and there's more folks that don't look like me. Um, that are, are uh, held at higher stand, or I'm sorry, held at lower standards while we are held at higher standards being people of color. Yeah. Um, so that's that's really uh, where I'm at currently. Okay. Mm. Kevin, how has this impacted you? Um, I really haven't done anything uh, different. Um, there's really not any, any point in time. I do watch a lot of news. I watch CNN and I watch Fox News. I kind of feel like it's imperative that I get both uh, perspectives mm. but I feel more because there's a lot going on with COVID and um, the, the COVID in itself has obviously for all of us limited our freedoms somewhat so I don't venture out as much as I once did not, and not because of anything racial it's just um I, I guess the bottom line is I'm more afraid of COVID than I am of white folks. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, it, it is it, it is what it is. It I mean, is I hate to is. say it that I hate to say it that way, but it's 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 old hat. It, it's nothing new. I mean, you know, we've always my neighborhood, my my neighborhood of friends that I grew up in. It was a mixed neighborhood as well. Um, we always perceived the police as just another gang. I mean, it, gangs were pretty prevalent when we grew, grew up in New Haven. And the police, uh, the cops were just another gang. Um, they weren't really your friends. Um, they weren't like you see on TV where the policeman is your pal. We never perceived them that way. Um, the one thing I do say is, I, I can say is that there does seem to be an empowerment that I haven't seen in a while uh, from, you know, supremacy groups. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Denville, that, that comment that you heard running, uh, you know, that's shocking to me that they are that empowered. I knew they were saying that behind, the, behind our backs and under their breath, but to be that emboldened to, to be um, confronted with that is something relatively new to me. Um, but no, it hasn't really changed, Scarlett, um, too okay. much of what I'm doing differently. Um, so I'm curious by... though, how do you, you know, watching those two different networks, does that stir uh -huh. up something? I, I can't do it there. You know, I, 
I get too mm -hmm. agitated too quickly. And, <laughs> you know, if that's the case, then my home won't be at peace because I'm going to be yelling and screaming when I hear certain things that I really know are just incorrect as, as they say, false news, fake news. Um, so how do you watch those two networks and, and do you stay calm? Do you, it doesn't, it, it doesn't bother you. You just, you just taking it all in. Yeah. I mean, it, it, um, Again, I, I, I go back to the animal kingdom. It's like watching those um, safari shows. If you see a lion eating an antelope, it don't. That's what lions do. Okay. You know. Yeah. And uh, if you watch that channel, that, that's what they're gonna do. Yeah. And so, when I watch the news, even on both sides, um, they're gonna lie. They're gonna. They're gonna. They're gonna yeah. twist. I, I I do enjoy how you can twist how someone can twist the same commentary mm -hmm. that part of it fascinates me even on the uh, liberals the so-called liberal side i mean now we're up in arms because the president is going to name a new supreme court justice which to me is just as important if not more so than the current election because they're defining the laws and the laws are now going to be on a conservative slant mm -hmm. but four years ago the democrats were on the opposite side of the fence you know, they would say, no, 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 he's the president now. We should we should name it now. We, we, he sh Barack should be able to appoint someone now. We should confirm them now. Well, now their tune has changed. So they've both switched. I mean, the Republicans are like, no, no, we, we should we should we should name them now. Whereas before they were like, well, we should wait. So, like I said, I watch it because there is a certain fascination that I have and how someone can so adeptly not answer a question. And I, there's something, I think there's a skill in that. I use that in my professional career. You know, if there's something that I'm uncomfortable answering, then there has to be a way. And I, and I model myself and not being able to, you know, perjure myself or not, you know, con condemn myself by not answering a question. Well, let me say this about that. And you go off on a whole other tangent. So I am fascinated by how you can think you watch a show and you and you think they got this person nailed. They got there's no way they can wiggle out. But guess what? They figure out how to they wiggle themselves out. And there is an art to that. And there's an and there's there is a fascination, at least to me. Nobody else shares this fascination but me, but I, I find it unbelievable how you can be so adept at saying nothing for so no, long. you're not by yourself there's a lot of people i mean that you know that's just the art of language the art of conversation you know oh, my man. mother says that about me she was like you got something for everything and i was like yeah pretty much i do try uh you know there's, there's certain levels you got to kind of stay on your p's and q's so you got that comeback um right so but i i think some of that too is just a political environment has nothing to do with race uh, it, it, that's just the way that environment to me has always been. You know, you say what you need to say, you stay to your points, you hone in on your message, you don't get distracted by the question. And if you don't want to answer the question, you say something else and stay on yeah. it. You know, that's just to me politics. Um, but, yeah. But there's, there's been no point in my life, even now, where. I mean, at any point in time prior to now, I always felt that any of these things that happened to our brothers and sisters out there couldn't could happen to me. It, it doesn't seem more keen now than before, than 10 years ago. I mean, if I got pulled over by the cops and say, say Orange, Connecticut, then at any point in time, I mean, I had, you know, the worst butt whipping I've ever received in life has been by the police in Wallingford. And that was about probably 40 years ago. And um, I feel the same, I felt the same way then. I mean, when the cops, when that siren goes and, you, and your anxiety is elevated and you're like, oh boy. And, um, but no, I don't, I don't feel more in danger or less inclined to go different places now than before. To me, nothing truly has changed. I will say I thought that there were some, and, and LA, I'm interested in your thoughts about this. I, I do think there was a period of time where I felt a little safe because I was a woman. Uh, you know, whether I was, you know, I, I have the same kind of feeling when I see the siren. You know, for me, it was like, oh gosh, I don't want to get a speeding ticket. My insurance going to go up. 
but I didn't fear my life. Now it's, it's different. I do fear for my life more so now. And I can't say that I always felt that way. I just, I thought perhaps being a woman, uh, it was less likely for me to be profiled. It was less likely for me to be pulled over for no reason. But now, yeah, I think totally different now. LA, do you think there are any differences or what have your impacts? I didn't, I didn't ask you that question. So I'm curious no, about no, the okay. impacts you have, but also, you know, this, this male, black male versus black woman experience. I think, right. yeah, I think there are some differences, but certainly there are similarities. Yeah, I, I think for myself, um, you know, even before the Breonna Taylor incident happened, uh, there were, you know, uh, quite a few um, women that we heard in the news, um, you know, mysteriously died while in police custody. Um, you know, I just found it really interesting when um, the video came out with George Floyd. Um, you know, I, I often wondered, because we didn't see footage of what happened to Breonna Taylor, is that why it didn't kind of, it wasn't as gut-wrenching to people, it didn't really punch them in the gut? Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, I, I was actually kind of saddened by that because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is a black woman, you know, who whose life was snuffed out. And I'm not saying that people didn't care and that they weren't outraged, um, but was it because we didn't, see it um it wasn't um it wasn't in our face every day like every day we were seeing that scene with george floyd and i, and I believe that that was also done on purpose to almost be uh kind of get us desensitized to seeing violence against black people it, it really bugged me and i actually literally called every news station that i could find and say why are you continually showing this you know why are you showing it we get it we know what happened we saw what happened we can find that other places you know so you know, it, it, it frustrated me um, because I have nephews who are uh, very big presence um, and I worry about them. I do um, because they're very, very much um, strong black men who don't take any mess and um, they're respectful. Um, they were raised that way, but they're not scared. And so that part of me kind of it, it made me nervous um, as far as myself being fearful. I'm just honest, I'm not. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't look over my shoulder thinking, you know, and, and maybe that's part of my toughness. You know, I, you know, I don't think I'm the, the best thing since sliced bread, but you bring, you come, you come at me, you're going to get what you're coming for, you know? So, I, you know, I'm very aware of my surroundings and, and where I go and, and how I, you know, how I be, um, you know? And so I, I think, like you said, with COVID, you know, and then I'm also, you know, helping um, my mom take care of my dad who has dementia. So there's just a lot of things layered on top of each other. Um, so, you know, just finding those outlets and, and I'm also an optimist. I believe that things will get better. Um, and I, I try to do what I can, um, you know, with my own call to action to be able to empower and, and, and help. So, yeah, but I do see some nuances with men and women. Do you believe things will get better, Kevin? Uh, wow, that's a loaded question. Um... And and I'm assuming you're asking that question like will I ever do I ever feel there's going to be a time where we're not going to be brutalized by the police? Mm. Mm. No. You know, do you have any optimism? You know, it, you know, LA, you know, kind of presented a little bit of optimism about just trying to be hopeful that things will things will get better. I'm just curious, you know, if you feel that way. I mean, there's always going to be that that bad apple that 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 uh, some rogue cops. Um, you know, you always hear that narrative saying that don't condemn the entire police community because of a few bad ones. I mean, there is some truth to that. I mean, I've had mm -hmm. friends that were cops, black and white. Um, the the problem I have is that more so than the rogue cops, because the rogue cops, you know, it's always going to be hard to weed them out. But what I what I say to those those guys that are what I perceive as good cops is it's going to stop only when they start calling out mm -hmm. their peers. Mm -hmm. You know, they have that blue wall. You know, they'll con they will for forever convict black people 
for you know having the, the phrase you know no snitch policy but they invented it i mean the cops they do not snitch on each other and so uh, until that that dynamic changes until they start calling out their own and because you know in the george, george floyd situation you know that's a rogue cop obviously but what's equally disturbing to me is the others that just did not intercede on his behalf because that's a fellow blue you know blue gang member and that's what i feel needs to change will it now i optimistic that it will god i hope so i got two grandsons man and and you know for them i hope so but you know they have to conduct i have to teach them to conduct themselves not expecting it i mean and and to be above it and thank god i had my mother in my life who who you're above all of that so you know you asked the question earlier am i more fearful now no i'm not more fearful i would say my fear level is the same i'm not fearless it's 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 the same i still have certain fears in certain scenarios but that's you know i feel like we can use that to our advantage because black people are accustomed to being the minority in certain situations, but take a white person. Like I've had, I had um, a smattering, a sprinkling of white folks at my wedding <laughs> because I think I got a better price if I had like six white folks at my wedding, but. Yeah, okay. But. <laughs> <laughs> Only you. They didn't know that, but go ahead. <laughs> but you can sense their discomfort, whereas black folks, I mean, Carla, I mean, you're a, cl- a classic example. I mean, you're extremely comfortable being the only. And that is something I think ultimately we can use to our advantage, being the only. We don't feel disadvantaged being the only in a scenario, but they do. Mm. And, you know, answering that question of will it get better? I mean, I just think that white folks have a fear of us, which is why it's easier to shoot first and then try to figure it out later. Mm-hmm. There is a fear and they probably shouldn't be shouldn't be cops. But I still maintain what I said earlier. The long winded answer is that until the so-called good cops start putting their foot right. down and saying, yo, you're making us look bad. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that that mm-hmm. can yeah, I want to I want to build upon that, Kevin. I think that what I've learned in the latter uh, part of my life, and I and I, I would say that for me, adulthood really came when I was like 25. I, I feel like 25 until now, uh, just because of the fact that I was, you know, whether it's ignorance is bliss or or just naive, etc. Um, you know, just really focused on self, you know, in, in your in your early 20s and in teens, etc. Um, but I, I want to build upon what you said because of the fact that I do feel as though that fear manifests itself into so many things. It either fear and intimidation, uh, either intellectual intimidation when you yeah. when you are the only one. Um, and and like I said, uh, you know, I, I am just now seeing uh, being made to be felt felt different, you know, in my environment. But previous to that, I was you know, the only black or, or, or only one of two black people and black ma- males, especially um, mm-hmm. in my college courses. Um, and then after that, you know, my graduate school, the only black <laughs> male in my graduate school, uh, you know, in the courses that I took, um, the only black male that was excelling, you know, in my predominantly white uh, former employer. Uh, and then again, the only black male in, in you know, uh, the recruiting office at Yale University. So I think that it always put me in a position of feeling like, wow, I, I'm really blessed. But then as I started to really understand what was going on around me, I said, wow, you're so intimidated of me. You're, you're intimidated of the way that I speak. You're yeah. intimidated of the way that I articulate myself. You didn't know that I knew the thing or how am I supposed to know the things that I know? Right. Um, and it, it, it's not unless you are being extremely quiet, um, maybe sometimes um, putting yourself in an inferior position for fear of, you know, being outcasted or whatever the case may be, um, that that you really start to understand that it's really them. It's really their ability to feel comfortable or not comfortable. And, and they're, they openly will speak about it or you'll feel it if they're not comfortable. Um, so I just find that very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, 
to answer your question, Carla, I think that I've seen this year, and it's, it's actually a statistic that I, I look forward to actually knowing what the real number is at the close of the year, but I've seen more and more women of color um, get their permits, um, going for uh, gun courses, um, sending in their applications, and then, you know, the result looking, I see more and more black women um, in gun stores when I'm shopping, when I'm making my purchases for ammo or et cetera. Um, so I, I don't know if that's a nuance, um, but I find it very, very interesting that I've been a gun owner for about five years now, and I am seeing influxes of uh, groups of black women taking courses together and getting their permits, et cetera. Um, do I feel optimistic that things will be better? Um, I, I do hope that things are better, but I do know and see um, us uh, living in our power, um, getting more access, um, and, and, you know, re really uh, in, 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 in terms of what I was just speaking about, um, knowing their rights and, and knowing how to, or wanting to learn how to protect themselves just in case. Yeah. Um, because I, I think what we're all tired of is the uh, feeling like we, we have to take out the insurance uh, for what is happening um, and, and being uh, kind of fully saturated in our lives now. Yeah, I, I think big picture, um, I, I, I certainly am hopeful that, that things will get better, that that's my belief system. I'm always a positive thinker, uh, but I do understand the reality. I do understand in recognizing where you are in the times and being prepared to handle that, however that shapes and forms itself. Um, but I would say that, um, that if it's necessary, you know, for us to kind of um, get additional resources, whether that, you know, is your permit or however, that that's a necessary thing you've got to do. Uh, I think those statistics will be interesting because I think talking among my friends, it has definitely been a, um, a conversation that I hadn't had in the past. Mm. Well, I mean, we are talking about this more, uh, about right. just arming, you know, should we arm ourselves? And, mm. you know, getting comfortable with what a gun feels like for in case of, right? Mm, right. And, and, right. And, and I've been that way. I said, I wanted to know what it felt like to hold one and to shoot one because if I'm ever in an environment where one is on the floor through a hustle and a tussle, I wanted to know what to do with it. You know, right. I don't want to be that chick in the movie <laughs> and you yelling at her, get the gun. <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to be that girl. Right. I right. want to be that girl that knows what to do and it's like it's ready to handle her business when it's necessary. Yes. But I would say as a black woman, I would say the weight feels hard for me because not now, I, I'm, I've always thought about my husband, my friends, you know, uh, it, from the male perspective, right? But I'm also even more worried now because of everything that's happening. But I'm also now worried about all of my black girlfriends as well. And I think mm -hmm. to me, it, it's just been compounded, you know, year after year after year, it just feels like there's just something else that I have to think about, something else I have to pray about, something else that I have to be concerned about. Uh, it doesn't feel like the burden has lifted. It feels like the burden has gotten heavier. Um, just to, you know, I think the black female, we carry a lot. We, you know, we, we nurture, we hold you guys up as our black men. Um, we know what your worth and your value is. And it weighs on me when I see others dishonor that. And I think, you know, being the only one, I think, Kevin, you, you brought it up first about, you know, just my experiences being in a white environment all the time, uh, you know, I shouldn't say all the time, but 99.9% .9 of the time, particularly in the work environment, in the neighborhoods and all of that, uh, going to the store and all of that, it's very few of me that I see. And so uh, I feel like you, Dimble, feel very blessed that, um, that I was taught how to manage and navigate through this system. Uh, I know how to code switch. I, I, my mother taught me how to do that very well. I, I have several voices. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on which line I'm picking up depends on who you get. Right. That's right. <laughs> but somehow, Carla, I feel, I, I feel a little less safe with you, Patrick, <laughs> for some reason. Me. Really? I'm just wanna, I just want to throw that out there. Throwing yeah. that out there. You you strapped right now does not get me the warm fuzzy. 
Um, That's okay, Carla. We'll go together. We'll go to the range together. Okay. Because I, Carla and I have had very intense conversations on a multitude of subjects, and I probably would not have engaged in any of them if I thought you were strapped. <laughs> <laughs> it will be okay, a surprise when I am. I trust me, man. Right. They, I don't. That's a surprise. I don't need to have. Uh, <laughs> right, right. All right. So, um, in the interest of time, I just want to wrap up with you know, what do we do now? What do we do now? What do we do as a community? What do we do from the black male perspective? What do black women? What do we need to do? Uh, I'll start with you, LA. Oh, hey. Well, I, I'm. I'm. <sighs> I'm empowered. I'm empowered. I, I believe we are seeing some grassroots efforts um, where, where people are really, um, you know, forming uh, alliances, um, you know, using their political power, using, um, you know, the fraternities, the sororities, um, you know, people really stepping up to the plate and saying, what can I do? And not just um, for today. It's like, how can we make lasting change? So I think it really is about partnering with a lot of the organizations that are already out, finding out um, ways that you can get involved. I'm, you know, not everybody is a political head, but there are some community-based things. There's trainings, like Denville said, there are ways that we can help um, that may not get in the spotlight, but they can have an impact. So I, I think it's, it's really about us, um, you know, just finding our own niche, reaching out to others and, and finding out what they're doing and, and just be, you know, partnering and supporting um, and just getting involved. They, we have to get involved some way, somehow. Great. All right. Great. Thank you. Uh, Dimble, what should we do now? Yeah, I think um, like Kevin said, uh, you know, he, he's seen uh, more of a uh, sustaining mobilization. So I think that's like what we can need to continue to do is uh, sustain uh, the movements sustain the the sit-ins, the 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 uh, not the not so much the the dangerous rioting, but um, definitely uh, making sure that we're protesting, getting out there for the things that we believe in. Um, I think as uh, black men, black women, uh, I think a lot of things that I did was actually just like reflect. I did a lot of reflecting early on in April and May. Um, really started to learn more about my past, learn more about you know I did ancestry DNA. Um, I looked more into that. I looked more into just like the history of black excellence. Um, so not only focusing on the negative stuff, but looking at um, inventors, looking at um, really just the, the folks that in our past have kind of paved the way for us. And I think that's something that really empowers me to continue to do the good work that I'm doing um, in, in my professional uh, arenas, but then also in looking back and reaching my hand for, uh, you know, my black students, uh, you know, mm -hmm. university, um, making sure I'm giving examples of uh, various um, diversity types of examples in the two classes that I teach at the university, not only sticking to the book and its curriculum, but also bringing a lot of what's going on in the social climate and nice. business world at the business Excellent. school. Um, so Wonderful. That that's something that we all can do um, as, as the folks that are doing well, um, reaching back and, you know, picking up the folks that are behind us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. Kevin, what should we do now? Well, as a man of faith, first and foremost, pray. Mm. But when you pray and you get up off your knees, then what do you do? So for me, it's to be a, a walking, talking testimony that we define us, not the enemy. And so if I can impact any positive influence, Carla, on my nephews, your sons, my own biological nephews, my grandsons, um, I have nieces and nephews in college, just continue to encourage them that you define more so your lot in life. You are not defined by anybody else's opinions, thoughts, of you. So don't believe that hype. I mean, I, I am a proponent strongly of self-empowerment. So I believe that we control our destiny and it is not controlled other, by anyone other than mm. ourselves. Mm. Excellent. Oh my gosh. Yes. Thank you all. Yes. And I would add to that because I, you know, you all spoke so well about some of the things that we can be doing now. I would also say because we're in a critical moment now, preparing for the next national election. 
I encourage all of us in the Black community to get out and vote. We have been yes. seeing a lot of traction. We've been seeing a lot of gathering of the Black communities, whether they're Black students or whether they're just, you know, your neighbors or your grandmas and, and all of those that we, that are eligible to vote, getting them out there to the polls and to not believe the hype, to not believe that, you know, there's a big lead. And so now we don't need to go to vote or, you know, there's a possibility of this. We have to shut out the noise and exercise our right to vote. And, and, and there's so many other things that you all mentioned, I, I, but, I'm, but I'll stick to this point right now as we get ready to close, that it is important. Uh, there are so many people who fought for our rights to vote. We need to exercise it. Uh, we Absolutely. need to make sure that not only we participate in the national elections, but also in the local elections. And I wholeheartedly agree with all of you is that we have to continue to build each other up. We have to let each other know that we have a purpose, we have an identity, and that we must hold our head up. We must understand our value and our worth and live, and live being yes. who we are. So I'm yes. so happy all of you joined us. Thank you, thank you, yes. thank you, thank you. This has been excellent. <laughs> so There's so much we could talk about. So I'm definitely yes. gonna have both of you guys back so that we can continue yeah. and talk about different things. Thank you so much for being a part of the Chair Chronicles. <laughs> I love it. My pleasure. You see my thank chair? You. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Denville. Good to see you. Carla, yeah, LA, you. very nice meeting you. Awesome. I enjoyed it. Meeting you. Vote. Go yes. vote. Go vote. So thank you all for tuning in, and we appreciate it. We want you to like. We want you to share this video. We want yeah. you to spread the word about the Chair Chronicles podcast as we continue to bring good content to you. So thanks again for joining us on the Chair, the chair Chronicles. Chronicles. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.